So we're coming to this last week in this journey on the road to resurrection, and um, all the things we've talked about for the past five weeks, uh, all those events are going to get stuffed into this one week, uh, and it's a fairly intense kind of time. And as you move through this week, I want to just kind of invite you to kind of go back through that and think about that and remember it with the qualifier that all through that time you're going to remember that we keep our eyes on the resurrection, that we have the, this beautiful image in front of us of the resurrection. This is what makes the journey bearable, is knowing that this is where you're going to arrive. And so hold on to that image as you move through this week. And hear again Paul's word to us from the book of Romans. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Let's pray. So Father, here we come on Palm Sunday, on the beginning of this Holy Week, this, this journey of time when we walk into a, a, a place of darkness and a time of shadows and a time of pain and grief, and we confess that it's a journey that we do not look forward to. But we know that it's a journey that is so rich and a journey that is so powerful and is so deep in your love. So come and lift us up and bear us up as we move through this. Surround us in your love and in your glory that we might be able to stand firmly and faithfully with our Lord. This morning, come and be with us and let the words of my mouth, let the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the, the traditional story that starts off this is the, the Palm Sunday story. And this is an interesting Sunday because this Sunday on the calendar now is marked as Palm Sunday and also Passion Sunday. So we have these, these two stories that are seemingly worlds apart, but actually only days apart that are, that are connected. And normally we go kind of with one or the other. Uh, and, and I started thinking this year that, you know, I don't want to do that. I kind of want to live in between them. Uh, so I want you to kind of go along on this journey with me a little bit. Uh, if you look at a city map of the old city of Jerusalem, you'll see there's a circle on the right around the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and Jesus and his disciples would have been staying up that road from there a little bit. He's at the village of Bethany. And it's that road that runs by the Garden of Gethsemane on which they would have walked as they came into the town for Palm Sunday. On the other side of the city, you'll see another circle around the traditional site of Golgotha, uh, the place of the crucifixion. And you'll notice there's a road that runs out there too from the Antonian Fortress north of the temple uh, down to the place of crucifixion. It's called the Via Dolorosa. And, and both of those roadways <laughs> have significant events occur on them in this week. And, and both of those mark amazing moments uh, in the life of our Lord and, and moments we hold on to. So I'm going to start with, with the Palm Sunday kind of piece because this is the traditional kind of understanding of this congregation, at least for this Sunday. Uh, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. 
Many people spread their cloaks along the, on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And so we have this, this magnificent procession that comes into Jerusalem uh, with the people waving the palm branches. Now, in, in Jesus' time, the, the palm branches were a symbol of life and were waved as a symbol of life. Because if you go into the arid areas of the Middle East and you're traveling across the desert, when you look out and you see one of these in the distance, you know water, right? You're going to live. So, so they came to be seen as symbols of life. And so the people would wave these when armies and generals were returning to, victoriously to the towns. They would wave these as a sign that, that, that they're going to live, that they're, they've lived and they're going to continue to live. And they would shout, Hosanna, which means you've saved us. Hosanna, you've saved us. Their cloaks were spread on the road as a, as a sign of submission to the authority of the returning generals. And so all this kind of reenactment that, that Jesus is going through as he comes into the city is normally what you would see for a general returning from battle victoriously. And as he comes in, the crowd greets him and they cheer because they think the Messiah has come. After all these years under Greek oppression and, and Roman oppression, the Messiah has come. And once again, Israel is going to be free. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And, and that's the moment at which things began to turn. Instead of that being the moment when he declared, I'm the Messiah and it's time to throw those dirty Romans out and take back over, he looked around and then he left. And he left. And the crowd began to wonder about him. You know, when we come to this time of year, you know, we, we have people who want to come on Palm Sunday and then they want to come back on Easter Sunday. They don't want to do this stuff in between, right? Because it's hard and it's painful and it's difficult. And yet it's oh so important. And we're not that different from the people back then who wanted what they wanted, who wanted their expectations fulfilled, who wanted their kingdom, Israel, restored and so when Jesus didn't do it they begin to to wonder they they probably didn't understand at that point where things were going to go and sometimes I think we looking back on it tend to I don't know we kind of want to gloss over some of this stuff I mean we have these these symbols you see with the I-N-R-I at least that's what we we think they are they're actually signs from the Greek alphabet they represent the first letters of Jesus of Nazareth king of the Jews and, and Pilate had this posted on the top of the cross, you know. He did it in Hebrew, Aramaic, and uh, Greek so that everybody that came by, whoever they were, would be able to read what it said, where it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was kind of a, a, a you know, kind of a little jab he was taking at the Jewish leaders who had forced him into this execution. And, and yet we now, all these years later, kind of look back on that and, and almost kind of begin to think of that as like, okay, that's, that's real, um, and, and he really was the king of the Jews, uh, but maybe more than that even. If you go to the Middle East today and you go to the site of the crucifixion, it's inside a, a cupboard under the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And the actual site where the cross stood looks like this chapel. 
in the center of that, that gold marble and all that ornate decoration, you'll see a little raised table has a space under it. You can come down on your knees and crawl under there and place your hands on the rock and feel the hole in the rock where the base of the cross would have stood. But it, it looks glorious, doesn't it? It looks magnificent. And if you're there on Good Friday, you can walk that Via Dolorosa, which goes from the old Antonian fortress out to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And there's a huge crowd of people that walk it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge event every year. And sometimes when we're doing this, we, we, we again, we, we kind of want to go from Palm Sunday to Easter, so we kind of minimize the reality of the crucifixion. I want you to hear how people of the time looked at it, right? Cicero, it was an extreme and ultimate punishment of slaves, the cruelest and most disgusting penalty. The historian Josephus called it the most pitiable of deaths, and Seneca wrote and said, it is better to commit suicide than to be crucified. I mean, crucifixion was intended to be horrific. It was intended to be disgusting. It was intended to be so awful that everyone who looked at it would say, I am never going to do anything to cross Rome. I mean, Jesus was scourged by Pilate before he was crucified, and he was flogged 39 times, and because 40 lashes was considered to be a death sentence. So before he ever carried that cross beam out, he was already severely injured. And then he's crucified, and, and the crosses were just outside the city gates so that everybody going in and out of the city walked by them. And they weren't up high like we have in all of our pictures. Uh, the cross beam would have been maybe eight or nine feet up in the air, so you know you were really up close to the people walking by. And they could walk by and they could hear you gasping. They could watch you dying. And if no one claimed the body, it would be left there for several days so that the birds and the animals could come and scavenge on it. It was intended to be horrific. Some of you were here years ago. A group of us went and saw uh, The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. Uh, and we went and watched that. And there, and there were people that came out that, that were just shook. And they were going, oh my gosh, that was awful. Why did he have to make it so gory? Why did he have to make it so horrible? And, and, and my answer was, because it was. Because it was. It was supposed to be. About 100 years or so after Jesus' crucifixion, Rome is going to outlaw crucifixion as being inhumane. At the same time that they will still allow you to be thrown into the arena with the wild animals to be killed. It was supposed to be that way. And it's really easy for us in going through our emotions to just kind of avoid that because it's just too painful. It's just too painful. And, and yet I want to submit to you that the same crowd that was there on the road that day going, Hosanna, Hosanna, is the same crowd that stands in Pilate's court and is going to crucify him. So how, how did we get from Hosanna to crucify him in those few short days? Remember, 
Remember, he comes in, he looks around and sees everything, and, and, and then he leaves. He didn't do what they expected. He didn't follow the rules. He didn't meet their expectations. And I don't know that we're all that different. There's a teaching in Mark's gospel that takes place in the middle of this week. Jesus is in the temple. And some Pharisees and Herodians come to Jesus to catch him in his words. They come to him and they said, Teacher, we know that, oh, I love the flattery. We know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, getting away from the flattery, I, I just got to get a little comment here. I know April 15th is coming up. Timing's kind of rough. So I just want you to say, don't, 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 don't think God's speaking to you about this, about not paying your taxes this year, okay? Just don't go there, all right, please. But, but you need to hear that there's more here than simply paying the taxes. The tax paid to Rome was paid in the Roman coins. And on the Roman coins was embossed on one side the image of Caesar. And for the Hebrews, graven images were not to be made. And a number of those coins have an inscription that even referred to him as the divine Caesar. So for the Hebrews to, to handle that coin, to do business in that coin, was defiling. So the question here isn't just so much about taxes, although that's part of it, but, but, but even deeper than that, it's about should we, should we defile ourselves for the purpose of paying this tax or not? So they, they built this little box they're trying to put Jesus in. And Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Now, they weren't amazed at his wisdom. They were amazed that he got out of their trap. Because this is the setup they had made for him. You know, if, if he says, yeah, pay that to Caesar, all the good Hebrew loyalists are going to be angry with him. And he says, no, don't pay that to Caesar. Rome's going to be angry with him. So however he answers this question, someone's going to hate him. And instead he puts it back on them. Okay, so... You figure it out. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. You know, that sounds like a really easy answer, uh, except, you know, really, where's the dividing line? Where's the dividing line? I mean, is there anything that actually belongs to Caesar that doesn't first belong to God? And we still struggle, don't we? To separate out what is, what's of first importance and what's of second importance. What's primary and what's secondary. You know, when Jesus stands in front of Pilate on Good Friday, you, you have Pilate representing the power of the world and you have J Jesus, the power of God's love. And the crowd wanted what the power of the world would give them. And sometimes so do we. You know, we did a study 
a while back uh, here recently. It was around a book. It's called The Liturgy of Politics. And the central kind of thesis of this book is that instead of being faithful in the way we should be, so often we let all of our political and social kinds of ideas and constructs drive our definition of who God is. And so we work back from the world to define who God is and, and who our religion is instead of the other way around. And I love this quote from Bishop Hunter early in the pandemic, and he was quoting N.T. Wright. He says, uh, reading N.T. Wright's God in the pandemic prompts me to give you his take on reframing the issues of the day, put Jesus in the center of the picture, and work out from there. We don't start thinking and responding via the frame of anything else, political parties, political theories, theological action groups, or even extra-biblical theological constructs and schemes, and then try to fit Jesus and the kingdom into those frames. It distorts, pollutes, and marginalizes Jesus every time. So the crowd in Pilate's court started from the world and what they desired, not from the place of the love of God. And it's really easy for us to do that. Let's be honest. It's really easy for us to do that. I have to constantly watch myself. It's so easy, you know, to instead of uh, doing it properly, to, to get it backwards. Instead of going from, from the Word, the, you know, the Word of God, the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. Instead of going from the Word to, to the words that I use in the world and I hear in the world, it's really easy to go to the words I use and hear in the world and from those build up who I think the Word, what the Word should say, what the Word should be. Our uh, founder, John Wesley, said it like this. In all cases, the church is to be judged by the Scripture, not the Scripture by the church. It's really easy for me uh, to forget that I need to go from eternal truth to the temporal truths of the world. Instead of taking all the temporal truths that we think we know and trying to build the eternal truth out of those. It's very easy for me to get engaged in the current spirit of the time and build my understandings out of that. And the problem with that, as Dean Inga of St. Paul's would say, is if you marry the spirit of your own generation, you will be a widow in the next. It's hard to do that. It's hard for us to open ourselves up to the power of God's love in the middle of this. And if you're thinking, gosh, I don't know, do I really do that? Really? Have you ever heard or said, you know, a, a, no good Christian would support this candidate or that candidate or this law or that law? Or have you ever thought it? Have you uh, ever cut off a relationship or been cut off in a relationship over political differences? You don't have to raise your hands, incidentally. Have you ever felt that you could not love or be loved if you were not in agreement with someone? Mm -hmm. So, there's the crowd. There's Pilate and there's Jesus. And do we pick the power of the world or the power of God's love? Later on, uh, his disciples would, would understand this better. And, and Peter would write and say, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And, and Paul, who would write the great 1 Corinthians, that 12th chapter, where he talks about all the gifts of the Spirit and how all of them are needed and all of them work together to build up the body of Christ, would end that chapter with this comment. 
yet I will show you the most excellent way. Above and beyond all the spiritual gifts, I will show you the most excellent way. And then he launches into that 13th chapter where he talks about the love of God. Not, 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 not God's love, not the kind of warm, fuzzy ways we think about it, but, but God's love and the, and the strength and the purposeness and, and the power of it. I mean, he finds it like love is patient, it's kind, and it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. And as we go in this week, and we really move into this week and try to engage with the events of this week, that's the kind of love we really need to be in. Because if we're not grounded in that love, we'll start longing for the kingdom of the world. So I've done this with you before. I'm going to invite you to do it again this morning. When I raise my hand, I want you to say your name. You ready? Tom is patient. I expect to hear you. Tom is kind. Tom does not envy. Tom does not boast. Tom is not proud. Tom is not rude. Tom is not self-seeking. Tom is not easily angered. Tom keeps no record of wrongs. How you doing? <laughs> yeah, it almost drives you to despair, doesn't it? This is what it means to be, what it means to be grounded in the, in the love of God. And to hold fast to that. To hold fast to that. I mean, really, when you get right down to it, do, do we really want the kings of the world? Is that really what we want? I mean, do you really want Pilate? Or maybe Putin? Is that really what you want? Or, or is what we really want the king of kings. Is that who we long for? The king of kings who is also wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Which one do you really want? You know, at the end of Mark's gospel, the centurion stands there by the cross and he says, surely this man was the son of God. Now this is the centurion. This is a, a, a veteran soldier who's in charge of the squad that has executed Jesus. And watching how Jesus dies, he says, surely this man was the son of God. He did not say that about Pilate. He did not say that about Caesar. He said it about Jesus. And so as we go through this week, are we going to be saying the same thing? I'm going to close this time there with a prayer that came to me this week. Our RDS sent this out by email, by the district newsletter. This is from an Irish poet, but it's a lovely poem. I'm going to have to get the book. I'll see if we can get this put up on social media for you. But this prayer, so I'm just going to invite you to be in prayer with me. Gods of Pilate, you are loud and lazy, following the fashions of the day, making lies out of love and making mockeries of meaning. And so often we follow you. May we instead follow that small whisper, even when we barely hear it, even when we barely believe it, 
even when it hurts. Because this is what love is. This is what love is. Amen.